0: We're continuing in Ephesians tonight, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, anyone who's been paying attention to our Sunday morning series on the church that Jesus built will be familiar with part of this text. I've read it several times, the, the latter part of Ephesians chapter 2. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on that particular part of the text tonight because I've been talking about it a lot on Sunday morning. But as we are coming into the, the second chapter here, so far the message of Ephesians has been the centrality of God In the story of human history, right? We are characters in his story. It's not the other way around. One three through four, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Nineteen and twenty. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? His choosing, his power, and then finally 2.8.9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God that not of result of works that no one may boast. His choice, his power, his gift. He is the one that is in charge here, Right? And I want to be clear about this if it hasn't been clear. It's not the elders. It's not the preacher. It's not any political figure. It's not any entertainment figure of this country or any other, right? All of humans throughout history are of secondary importance to God and his story. Now he has offered each and every one of us supporting roles for playing the metaphor out. We get to have supporting roles in this story if we are we're going to accept what he is offering us. One twenty-two through 23, put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's not our body. It's not my church. Sometimes people ask me, or not ask me, there's sort of a, a phrase like, uh, oh, yours, your church is the Dewey Church of Christ. It's not my church, right? I happen to preach here. It's not the elders' church. We sort of are here, and it's great that we're part of this group. But it's his body, right? It's Jesus' body. It's not my body. It's his thing. Now, we get to be a part of that thing. And that's part of what we talked about this morning, right? We get to be a part of the thing that Jesus is building. But we have to keep him firmly in the forefront, 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even the good that we do. I'm doing the good. I'm only doing the good that God enabled me to do, that God prepared for me to do beforehand. Even the good things that I'm doing are at the power and enabling of God. He is the one who enables us to do these things. This is all key understanding as we go through the book of Ephesians understanding the point of the text in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, the backdrop of what he says in these verses is that we are all inferior to Jesus. We all are inferior to the choices and the decisions and the acting and the power of God. So let's read our text, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Remember, therefore, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh Called the uncircumcision, in quotes, by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once afar off have been brought near. Very evocative of Acts 2, right? We read this morning the promises for you and for your children and our who are afar off. Well, that was them. They were afar off, right? Now you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We'll talk about what this dividing wall is. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the title of the lesson tonight. This idea of killing the hostility. What does that mean? It's very exciting. And he came came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. And this is the verse that we've read. We've read this several times in our, our Sunday morning series. For through him you both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these particular verses. uh, Again, because we've been talking about them on Sunday morning, I really want to emphasize these verses. Now, of course, what follows the being built into the structure, that's part of this. There's several layers to meaning here as we think about these verses. We think about the interpretation. How should we interpret these? How should we apply? All centered on this phrase, killing the hostility. And as you read through this, you you see there's, uh, maybe you see them, maybe you don't. We'll go explain them. These different levels. There's maybe different levels of interpretation here. The most immediate, the most obvious is the first one, the Jews and Gentiles. The ancient Jews and Gentiles. And as we go through these layers, the question is, what hostility is there that needed to be killed? And how did Jesus kill that hostility? What hostility was there between the ancient Jews and the Gentiles? This is the focus not really of just the New Testament, but in a lot of ways, this is the focus of every part of the Bible from Exodus onward. Exodus, of course, the inauguration, the Passover uh, that we, we talked about in our series on the Lamb. Uh, ten plagues coming out of Egypt. Uh, the Egyptians, they're Gentiles, right? They're not Israelites. They're not Jews. Uh, that initial event for the Israelite history, they come out of Egypt, then they have to wander around because of the rebellion, but then what do they do after that in the book of Joshua and then into Judges? What are they doing? They're waging war. Waging war on who? The Gentiles, the Canaanites in that text, but the the non-Jews, right? Really from the book of Exodus all the way through the book of Acts, this is one of the main themes. Jews versus Gentiles. The hostility The hostility, in in many cases, literal hostility, waging war kind of hostility between Jews, the chosen people of God, and Gentiles, everyone else. You can see the difficulty in them getting beyond this. John 4, 7 through 9, even in the midst of the Gospels, we see this, this undercurrent of hostility, not just between Jews and the Romans, but even within Israel themselves. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Who are the Samaritans? Samaritans are those who remained behind in the captivity, intermingled with those the Babylonians brought into, till the land and, and work the land. They were impure. They were no longer pure Jews. Some of them were not Jews at all, right? The Samaritans, those who lived in Samaria. And because of that, they're not Jews or they're not pure Jews. Now we see in the time of the Gospels, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John four nineteen, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say, note to us and them, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This is the bare minimum of the hostility, which we said previously, involved many wars. This is the first layer of Paul's letter here. Writing to the Ephesians, which is probably predominantly, well, not, the town is definitely predominantly Gentile, just by the nature of the town. The church, probably predominantly Gentile. If we're going by percentages, it's hard to say. Maybe a higher percentage of the Jewish population in Ephesus was converted early and then there was more of them. But I suspect that if the makeup of the church runs anywhere near to the demographics of Ephesus, most of the Christians in Ephesus are Gentiles. But not all of them. And those Jews and those Gentiles in Ephesus would have had this undercurrent of tension, not just in their lives, but in their parents' lives and their grandparents' lives and their great-grandparents' lives going back, literal millennia. This is the first hostility that needs to be killed. The hostility of us versus them. The Jews versus the Gentiles. What did Jesus do to kill the hostility? Well, the text says in Ephesians 2, I should have had Ephesians 2 sprinkled throughout. He broke down the dividing wall, having abolished the, the ordinances. What are the ordinances? The law. All those laws... That told the Jews, be separate. All throughout Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Even in Exodus. All those laws that told the Jews, you got to be, be separate from them. Don't be with them. Don't be like them. Those are gone now. Those have been fulfilled. That's over. All that stuff's over and done. That's the first thing he did. And then what else did he do? You can trace it through the book of Acts, can't you? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Then they still don't get it. We talked about it briefly this morning. Those who arose after the persecution of Stephen went about preaching the word only to Jews. So what does God have to do? He has to send Peter a dream. He has to send Peter a literal vision of the sheet coming down, right? And all the different animals on it. My favorite verse in the whole Bible. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. What was that symbolic of? What does Peter say at the end? Now I perceive... That in all places everywhere, whoever does what is pleasing is acceptable to him. God has to literally send Peter a vision to get their heads into it. Hey, it's no longer Jews and Gentiles. Now it's everybody. And how did they respond to Jesus' actions here? How did they respond to that? Well, we read it again this morning. There arose no small disagreement between Paul and Barnabas and the rest of the Jews. you got to be circumcised. you got to do that. Well, what does Paul say here in Ephesians 2? You used to be the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, but that's that's over and done now. Even that is over and done. Which brings us to the second layer here. The Christian and the lost. Which is a stand-in, really, for the Jew and Gentile division, which would be God's people versus not God's people. In our context, it's not Jews and Gentiles. I don't know if anybody here is a Jew Maybe one or two of us have, if you've done the 23andMe, you'd know if, I guess, if you've done that. Most of us are all Gentiles, so our division is not, we're not really thinking about Jew and Gentile. What are we thinking about? We're thinking about the lost and the Christian. What hostility existed or exists between Christians and the lost? Because isn't that what he's talking about here? You were far off, separated from God. Now you've been brought near. You used to be not with God's people. Now you are part of God's people. This is the second layer of hostility we have to get over. John 17, 14. I have given them your word. This is he's talking about the apostles here, the work they're going to be doing. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth as you sent me into the world. So I have sent them into the world. Peter says it this way, right? With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and what they malign you. The hostility between the Christian and the lost is natural. It's inevitable. It's understandable. We do not do what they do and they don't like us. We preach moral truth and responsibility and sin and judgment and they don't like it. But there's another temptation here, right? I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Because what's the temptation for the Christian? To hate them right back. Those horrible people out in the world. Those lost people who don't know God. They don't like us. So I don't like them. And I just want to s- withdraw and separate. Isn't that what he's saying here? Don't, don't take them out of the world. You've got to keep them in. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. You can't just separate. You can't just be separate from the world. You have to be with the people in the world we can't stoop to their level of hating the world. Why? Romans 3, 9 through 11. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That was the point of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith Not as a result of works, not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. You're no better than the world. You happen to have been chosen by God. You happen to have responded faithfully, but you needed God's grace just as much as they do. They need God's grace because of their lostness. You needed it too. And fortunately, you've received it. And instead of hating the world for it, you could then turn around and be like, here, you need this too. Let us help you get it. They're not going to like us all the time. But we can't stoop to the level of the world and allow hostility To come between our mission and what maybe is easy, what is desirable, that I just don't have to deal with it. It's just so hard to deal with it, isn't it? And the temptation to withdraw. If we allow hostility to exist between us and the world, to hate the world as the world hates those who belong to God, this is going to kill our mission. Jesus did not just kill the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Part of his work was to kill the hostility between God's people and the world. So that we would reach out to them. So that we would seek them. The third layer. Okay, ancient Jews and Greek, or Jews and Gentiles. Which maps on to uh, the Christian and the lost. That maps on to then divided Christians. A lot of hostility between Christians. Even people who profess to follow Jesus are not, subject, are not exempt from this difficulty. What hostility exists between different Christian groups and individuals? What do we think about this? Galatians 2, 4 through 6. We read some of this already. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, they might bring us into slavery. What slavery? Slavery to the old law, right? To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who—I like the way Paul says this. Paul is the master of passive aggressiveness, the master of understatement. From those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. <laughs> what is Paul saying here? There's, they, they had leaders in Jerusalem. There were people who were influential. There were people who were in charge, people who seemed to be influential. God shows no partiality. Why would I? Whatever they were, it doesn't matter to me. Those, I say, who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. What hostility is there between different Christian groups? We see two of it here. One is the hostility that comes from disagreements about doctrine. Now, there's a level to this that is necessary, right? And Paul's not not exempt from this. He, He said, we read it this morning, right? There arose no small disagreement between those who wanted to impose circumcision and Paul and Barnabas. He wasn't just willing to let that go, On the other hand, we see a second level of this, which is what? I like this person more than I like that person. That's partiality. He says it in the Corinthian letter this way, right? Some of you say, I follow Paul. Some follow Peter. Some follow Apollos. But then what does he say after that? Did I die for you? Was Apollos crucified for you? These divisions that we create in the church ought not to be so. James says it this way, James 2, 1 and 2, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in and he goes and talks about this, the division not just of, well, I was taught by so-and-so and and I was taught by so-and-so, but the division of Earthly means, earthly categorizations. I'm from this country or this country. I'm this educated and you're that educated. I have this much money, you have this much money. I'm good at these things, you're, bad, you're good at those things. We could go even further, right? I have this skin color, you have that skin color. I speak this language, you speak that language. Those are all human divisions that get in the way of the mission. And this is really the layer that Paul's driving at in Ephesians 2, through 12. We go back to Jews and Gentiles. Racial difference, linguistic difference, cultural difference, historical difference, all these human things, right? Which is why he's saying to the Gentiles here, look, you've been brought close. You were afar off. You were separated. You're not divided anymore. I, Jesus killed the hostility. It's over. You're now in the group, hopefully, supposedly, in the group, Not because of what you've done, and this goes back to the first two chapters. Not because you're so great, not because of what you've done, not because you're so awesome, but because of what God has done to bring you into the family, to build you into the temple. We use the construction analogy so much today that we are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Who gets to be a part of that structure? Anyone whom the Lord our God will call to himself. That's what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, right? The Gentiles used to be separated, but now they're part of the group. The Jews couldn't keep the law, so they needed God's grace, and now we're all being built into this temple, united by hopefully a common understanding of God's will. Isn't that the foundation of the apostles and prophets? Just because we're in this, though, doesn't mean we're suddenly exempt from the temptations to divide, And that temptation for the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century, again, they're trying to overcome millennia of cultural heritage. The way that they've acted for generations. Those temptations have not suddenly vanished in our time. To view people according to the ways that people divide. Nations or politics or demographics or race. Jesus came to kill that hostility. We have to be better than that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What's that word, reconciled? To make new again, to restore the relationship that was broken before. The ministry of restoring relationships. Relationships between us and God, right? Through the world uh, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's bringing broken people back into a pure relationship with him. But also reconciling who? Who? Anyone who was in the world with people who have become new creations. The process of renewal. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Note the importance here. You still have the trespasses. It's not because you're so perfect. He's just not going to count it. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. The message of reconciliation. Is antithetically opposed. Grammatically opposed. Linguistically opposed. Opposed in every way. To a message of hostility. Reconciliation is the opposite of hostility. It's the opposite of exclusion. It's the opposite of being a part. It requires that we go to the world as Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. You'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. It requires that we go into the world. Do not keep them do not take them out of the world but keep them from the evil one. He said in John 17, requires that we go to the world and kill hostility wherever we find it. Hostility between us in this group. Hostility between different nations. Hostility between us and the lost. Because the lost are not your enemy. Who's your enemy? The devil is your enemy. Who's responsible for this? Well, ultimately, that's the point of Ephesians 2. Jesus provides this power. He provides this ability. He provides motivation. He is the one that enables this because he has done what we could not do. He has enabled salvation and forgiveness. But ultimately you and I are responsible for making it happen. Because Jesus is not going to come down here and force us to do it. Now he will eventually. That's going to happen eventually, right? But by then it'll be too late. This requires humility and understanding. Humility from recognizing our place in God's story. Understanding that is difficult. This is why we looked at last week the prayer for knowledge. Because these things are difficult to understand. Paul had to pray that we would understand these spiritual truths. Jesus provided the path for unity in the church that he built. It's a typo there. But we have to break down the walls that we build between each other. The walls that again... Are of the flesh. Race and nationality and politics, language, culture, so many things that we think matter that don't matter. Because remember, this is not our story, this is God's story. It's not about me, it's about Him. Well, then with James 3 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What's meekness? Meekness is privilege restrained, power restrained. It is the act, being meek is the act of not exercising all of your power or rights or privilege. To leave something undone. Let him show in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. There's that word impartial again, right? We've talked a lot about partiality. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He killed the hostility. That's a very aggressive way of saying what? He made peace. To be a peacemaker in the Beatitudes is what? Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Why will the peacemakers be called sons of God? Because that's what Jesus did. The son of God was a peacemaker preached peace to those who are far off and those who were near. We can't have perfect unity with everyone. We understand that. But we can make sure not to create these walls and allow human divisions to divide us. We can make sure that we don't allow human things to prevent us from seeking and saving the lost. We can make sure that we don't allow human things to keep us from fellowshipping with other Christians, to keep us from being peacemakers like Christ. And it begins with recognizing our inability to save ourselves. Why am I willing to extend grace to others? Because I needed grace. I needed forgiveness. I needed the mercy of God. And so I extend those things to others. As we offer the invitation, the invitation of 2 Corinthians, right? The ministry of reconciliation. On behalf of Christ, we appeal to you be reconciled to God. That's our appeal tonight. To be reconciled to God. We know that that needs to happen ultimately through submission to his will. Repenting, confessing, being immersed into him. But it also happens day by day. Most of you here, I imagine, are already Christians. Does that mean the hostility just goes away? No. Somebody did something to you last week. I know they did. Somebody mistreated you. Somebody said something mean to you. Make that right. Don't let it fester, don't let it metastasize into something that will divide us. We have an opportunity now, if you need to be making things right, come while we stand and sing.